Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, glad you are here uh, with us. Uh, parents, if you've got elementary school age kids and you want to dismiss them now to Aletheia Junior, um, our teachers will be at the back doors. You can just dismiss them now and head them. Uh, they can head back that way and go to their time. Uh, you may have noticed in your seat this morning, at least if you were in one of the first 200 seats, uh, one of these scripture journals uh, sit, sitting there. Uh, we've actually had 100 go missing, so uh, we're not sure what happened to them. So for those of you guys that don't get one this morning, that's our apologies. We have more coming. We'll have them next week for you. Um, but that is our free gift to you. We want you to take that with you and have that. Um, we're going to, uh, we would just ask that you would bring those scripture journals back with you each Sunday, uh, take them with you to a gospel community, uh, and you can use them. You'll notice if you open them up, they'll have the, the scripture that uh, we're, we're going through in the book of Judges on one side and then uh, blank spots on the other side for you to be able to take notes uh, and follow along. And hopefully God will use our time uh, in this book um, to, to encourage us, to equip us, and to empower us uh, to, to better know God's word and to live as growing followers of Jesus. That's kind of like what we're about here at Aletheia Church. We love God's word. We believe that he uses it to uh, equip us, to encourage us, and empower us to be his disciples um, throughout the week, not just on Sunday mornings. And so uh, one of the other things I'd say about having those little scripture journals with you um, is that we're going to be covering a lot of text each and every week as we study this book together. And we're going to post in the group me in future weeks and also online. Some of you guys that follow us on the various social media platforms, you may have noticed that this week uh, on what text we're going to be covering uh, in our sermons on Sunday mornings. And that'll give you a time to maybe read ahead and walk in here on Sunday morning prepared and ready, already understanding kind of what the text says. So I would encourage you to kind of prepare each week. You know, as we go through the book of Judges, we're going to be covering a lot. It's a big book. There's a lot of narrative to cover. And so coming prepared is going to be great. So Without further ado, let me give you guys just a little bit of an introduction. This, this study is going to last about 12 weeks. It'll go up to right about Advent time, and then we will do an Advent series before Lord willing, starting in 2023, as I joked last week, a 10-year study in the book of John. Um, so Judges, in many ways, is a continuation of what God had been doing in Israel uh, throughout the conquest in the book of Joshua. So if, you, if, you're, if you're familiar with the history of Israel at all, where this book lies in that history is right after Israel has moved into Canaan and begun taking the Holy Land in Canaan. And if you want to know more about Joshua and you're feeling a little zealous, we actually went through that book together as a church about two years ago. You can find those sermons online through our YouTube or on our website. And if you want to go back and watch through this so you have a better idea of what's going on, you can do so. But Joshua, that book was centered around the conquest of Canaan or the Holy Land as the Israelites called it. And it was God giving his people the land that he had promised to Abraham way, way, way on back in the book of Genesis. And so Judges, especially the first couple of chapters, is Israel's call to possess the land. They, they were to finish up the conquest that Joshua had started and settle in the assigned territories that they had been given. 
This meant then that they were called to defeat the remaining tribes and nations that were already in that, that particular area, inhabit those places, and drive the other nations out. And as we'll see as we study this book together, they're going to fail to do that properly, and it's going to lead to a lot of problems for them. So let me give you just a couple of things. If you're a note taker, this would be your time to start writing some things down so that you remember it in future times. Some key themes that we're going to see as we study this book together. And I've got three for you, but there's going to be three things that we kind of see consistently as we study the book of Judges together. The first one is this. We're going to see Israel's rebellion and apostasy kind of come in cycles, but it's going to happen over and over and over again. And it starts all the way in Judges chapter 1. We'll see this morning that there was a failure of the northern tribes to possess the territories that they had been commanded to take by God. And so because of this, these tribes and these nations that remain amongst them in the Holy Land are going to be a hindrance to Israel moving forward. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to Exodus chapter 23, um, God actually spoke to Israel and warned them that if they did not obey and do as he told them once they moved into the Holy Land, it was going to create problems for them. Uh, Starting in Exodus uh, 23 verse 31, he says this, He says, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods... It will surely be a snare to you. So what I want you to notice there, and this inevitably, whenever you study an Old Testament book, but specifically the the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, you know, here we are some roughly three to 4,000 years removed from the, the, the moment in time and history that this occurred. And so inevitably, especially in the U.S. and especially in our current cultural climate, right, we see something like this occurring and we see God being calling his people to go take and possess the land and throw another nation out and right. And we immediately yell imperialism, colonialism, all these different things. We get really frustrated about that. And so one of the things I want to point out to you is one, we need to not view the book of Judges through our own cultural context and time period, right? If, if you do that, you're going to be really, really confused about what's going on. The second thing you need to understand is what what God is doing in this time period, specifically through Israel, he's sending Israel in to one, keep the promise that he had made to his people and to Abraham. But the other thing we need to understand is part of what's occurring and what we just need to understand about world events in general is that in God's sovereignty, there are times where God does things that will appear as suffering or punishment to discipline a certain group of people to point them towards him. And so specifically with the Canaanites who were in this land, God made it abundantly clear to the Israelites that the reason the land was not given to them immediately when God made that promise to Abraham was because the iniquity and the sin of the Canaanites had not reached the level upon which God wanted to judge them and discipline them through Israel. 
And if you've ever studied the history of Israel, you'll find that a couple hundred years later, these people are so messed up that God uses the Babylonians and the Assyrians to conquer them as an act of discipline for their rebellion and apostasy towards God. And so when you're viewing the book of Judges, we are not viewing this the way that we would view, right, world events that start occurring in the 18s and 1700s of human history. We need to understand this through the lens of what God is doing. And what God is doing is disciplining groups of people and blessing others so as to reveal who he is to the world around them. And so, right, we see God say to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 23, hey, once I give you the land, do not make uh, military pacts, do not make peace with the Canaanites, do not intermarry with them, do not get involved with them, because if you do, a snare is going to be set, problems are going to follow. And sure enough, if you remember what Leah had just read for us in verse 10 of Judges chapter 2, look at what, look at what happens. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That was the generation that had come into the land with Joshua. And then look what he says. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now that word know there in the Hebrew is a whole lot more than just knowing information so that you can take a test or pass it or get some sort of accreditation at work or whatever it may be. That idea in the Hebrew is an idea of trust and faith and fully knowing somebody. And when it comes to knowing God, knowing that God was the one who had delivered Israel out of Egypt, had delivered them out of slavery, and that he is the one to be followed and trusted for their future. And so we see very, very early on this theme or this idea that Israel did not obey the commands that God had given them for flourishing. And because of that rebellion and apostasy, we're going to see a lot of suffering and difficulty come upon them as a people because they refused to follow God's commands. Now, the second thing we're going to see as we study this book together, is the importance of godly leadership. A frequently repeated theme in this book will be Israel's failure, followed by their being oppressed or conquered by one of the tribes that's in the land, which would then be followed by them crying out to God and God in his mercy, sending a leader to drive out the oppressors and give them a season or period of peace and prosperity of walking with the Lord. This will be something that we explore more as we study this book over the next 12 weeks or so. But one of the things I want to point out this morning is that Inside of scripture, what God teaches us, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself or, or describe yourself as a disciple of Jesus or as a follower of him, the Bible teaches us that being underneath godly leadership, leadership that exalts God, exalts his word, seeks to follow him, to obey him, to walk with him, is actually for our good not a hindrance to us. And here's what I know about those of us that have grown up in the U.S. That is not the common way of doing life. We're taught 
at a very, very early age in U.S. history class, well, because our founding fathers questioned King George, we should do the same. And we should always be questioning authority and leadership. Now, I'm not saying that there's not appropriate times to do that in life. But one of the overcorrections that has maybe come from the environment that we tend to grow up in and have been around is that we distrust leadership that God puts in our lives for flourishing, not as a hindrance to walking with him. And when we reject leadership that God has put in our life, what we end up doing is we end up exacerbating problems that we were the authors of. And so what we're going to see as we study this book together is God's going to just kind of like be gently reminding us, hey, I, when I send godly leadership to God's people, right, it would be wise to follow it because it is for your good and your flourishing and the, the exaltation of my name that has been sent. And then the last thing we're going to see as we study this book together, is we're going to see the faithfulness of God time and time and time again in the midst of Israel's rebellion and apostasy time and time and time again. And and in the midst of Israel's rebellion and apostasy, God will discipline them, but he will also send help and he's going to long suffer with them. You know, one of the things I hope that our time in this book will do for us as a church as we study this together is help us to realize that the God of the Bible is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There sometimes tends to be this tendency amongst us, especially because we tend to more easily identify with the New Testament, read through the Old Testament, work through that together, to think that the God of the Old Testament had a heart change and became different once Jesus came along in the New Testament. And one of the beautiful things that we see as we actually dive into the Old Testament and see how God interacted with Israel and how he loved them and how he made promises to them as a people is that the God of the New Testament and the promises of mercy and compassionate and forgiveness and love that Christians experience through the finished work of Jesus Christ is the same thing the Israelites experienced as well. And they longed for the day that the father would send his son, the Messiah, to rescue them. See, God at his core is compassionate and jealous for his people. He's long-suffering and merciful towards them. And when I use that term jealousy, because we're going to see that throughout the book of Judges, what I mean by that is God loves his people so much that when he sees them committing spiritual adultery with them, it infuriates him because he's a loving dad. You know, it's the same way I, I, I was thinking about this as I was reading through Judges a couple weeks ago, and I saw that God was disciplining and punishing the Israelites, and it says it was done out of his jealousy, and I was kind of like, oh my gosh, like what? that seems odd. And then as I paused to think about it for a minute, Right. If, if any of you have ever been in a relationship, especially like a, 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 a marriage partnership with somebody, if that person were to commit adultery on you, what would be your visceral emotional reaction to that? Anger and jealousy. Not because you're an angry or jealous person, but because your love for that person has been violated. And in the same way, God loves and longs for his people. And when we 
commit spiritual adultery towards him by running after idols, by rejecting his word, by running after the things of this world that were created instead of running after the creator God who is for, to be praised forever, yes and amen, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. What we do is we kindle his jealousy towards us, but it is a jealousy that desires to see us return to him, not one that just wants to punish. And so what we're going to see in the faithfulness of God to Israel as we study this book together is that we will see the true hero in the book of Judges is not Deborah or Gideon or Samson, the stories we might remember as kids or that we've read to our own kids in their study Bibles or their, their kids' Bibles. The real hero is Yahweh, the God of Israel, our hero. The one who saved Israel time and time again and saves us through his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the major things we're gonna see in our text this morning, right? We've kind of got that introduction out of the way. We kind of have some expectations set for our time and judges together. Here's what we'll see in our text this morning in that first chapter, in the first 10 verses of chapter two. We're gonna see that God is enough. We're gonna see that failure to obey leads to oppression. And we're gonna see that repentance is the only way forward out of disobedience. So if you don't mind, I would, I would just like us to bow our heads and I'm going to ask God as we, st we start this study this morning and over the next several weeks that God would just meet us and use our time in the book of Judges to see a greater worship of him and a deeper trust of him in each and every one of us. And that collectively as a church, that might cause us to love our city better, to love the campuses better, and love our world better. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for each and every person here this morning. God, I know that your word has the power to reveal who you are, to convict us of sin, to call us to repentance, and to lead us in abundant life that is joy-filled because it is obedient to you. So God, as we study this book together, Lord, will you illuminate the words Will you open our eyes to see? Will you open our ears to hear? And Lord, will you take what you call in your word our hearts of stone and will you melt them so that me, we might respond to you as a people? And Lord, will, this, will, the, will our time in the book of Judges lead us as a church collectively to a deeper and greater worship of you? And Lord, will that worship of you lead to many others coming to know you as their God and their King as well? And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Judges chapter 1, right? Kind of the first thing we're going to see is that point that I shared with you to start with, that God is enough. And I want to start by posing this to you. The greatest lie that you believe or the greatest question you believe and the greatest lie that I believe on a daily basis kind of centers around this question or this idea. Is God really good? Is God actually for my good? 
If you know anything about God, if you've spent any time in the church growing up, if you've studied his word over the course of time, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, right, where after creation, Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden, they're enjoying harmony and life together, they're walking with God, one of the first things you see is that the serpent gets Eve to question whether God is really for her and Adam or not. You know, he'll say things like, has God really said to you? Oh, you know that God said that to you because he knows that you'll be like him. He's withholding from you. He's robbing from you. You think God is for your good, but he's actually a terrible dad who's withholding goodness from you. And Eve and Adam both believe that. And we're going to see, right, as we work through the book of Judges, that Israel is going to continue to struggle with that same question that Adam and Eve struggled with back in Eden. Is God really good? Is he really for my good? Israel was faced with that question when they were in Egypt. They were being oppressed at the hands of Pharaoh. They were in slavery. And they're questioning, is God really good? Could God really be good if we were being forced into slavery? Like, how is this possible? Then God sends Moses and delivers them, leads them out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness, right? They're roaming in the wilderness for 40 years. God is showing up daily. And yet they're consistently asking in that generation, is God really good? Is he really going to deliver us? Right? Is he going to provide for us? Oh, I know he's providing man and water for us, but like, we want more. Is God holding out on us again? And then, as that generation passes away and Moses passes away and God raises up Joshua to lead them into the land of Canaan, again, they begin to ask, is God really good? Is he really going to deliver us? Is he really going to give us the land? And God delivers the land to them and they start to take it and they start to possess it. And with them this whole time, Moses and then Joshua are there to remind them that God is good and he's going to keep his promises. And yet, when we get to Judges chapter 1, we're going to see that Joshua, their leader and military commander and spiritual advisor, is going to pass away and they are going to immediately be challenged again. And they're going to immediately start questioning is God good enough? Is he really going to deliver us? Who's going to lead us now? What do we do now? And if, if you look at the historical narratives in the Old Testament, this is a consistent theme for Israel. Anytime a major leader passes away, it's almost as if they know we're terrible and without good leadership, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Except instead of like looking inward and seeing that it's their own problem, they blame God. Oh, God took Joshua away. What do we do now? What's going to happen? And so we see in kind of like these first 15 or so verses, right, the beauty of God showing us, showing Israel that he is enough. And he's going to show this to them in three ways, right? Remember, they've lost Joshua. They're, they're a wreck. This, this was supposed to be the guy that helped them completely finishing, completely finish taking the Holy Land, they're lost. And they're, they're asking, is, is God done with us? Is this over? And God shows up in, in three separate ways to remind them that he is enough and is going to be sufficient for them. The first thing we're going to see is God is going to display and assure the Israelites 
that he's with them, right? Look at verses one and two. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Right, Israel's panicking and God goes, look, Judah's gonna go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand, right? See the language there? If, you, if, you, if you're just kind of like skimming through this quickly, you'll miss it. God is assuring them, relax. I know Joshua's gone. I've got this. Lean on me. Send Judah in. That's the next part of all this. Trust me. I'm going to take care of it. And the question I want you to ask yourself here this morning, right, as you're sitting here and pondering this, is are we really any different than, than the Israelites here? How different are we? Or you might be here this morning stricken with habitual sin. Maybe you've got some health complications or a close family member's got some health complications going on and it's causing you to doubt what's going on. Maybe there's relational strife between a friend or a roommate or a coworker or a spouse. And when inevitably these, these seasons of tension and transi transition arise in our lives, we are tempted to not trust that God is for our good in the midst of that. And we question, who, who will we turn to in the midst of all of this? What will be our God? What will be our coping mechanism? And the beauty is, is if we've spent any time in God's word, right? What we see as we study it together is God's words are full of promises to us about being for his people and being for our good ultimately in his glory. I mean, just for example, right? God does not promote ease in our life all the time. I think one of the greatest lies that has been peddled about God and about Jesus and about Christianity is that if you simply pray a prayer and ask God into your life, that your life's going to be super easy. I'm here to tell you, friends, that is not the gospel, right? If someone has told you that and convinced you that if you just simply prayed a prayer, that your life is going to be full of ease, I'm not sure what theological camp that lies in, but it's not in the Bibles, right? As a matter of fact, like Jesus himself told his disciples, if you, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. You need to be willing to suffer. You need to be willing to lose family and friends. I tell people all the time, you know, what, I, I came to faith in Christ when I was in college and I did not grow up believing in God. And so a lot of my life was like spent questioning things. And one of the things I always used to tell some friends of mine that were in this group called the Free Thinker Society at JMU, which was kind of an ironic name for them because they weren't really free thinkers. They were just atheists. But you know, they, they always have like the same tired arguments for me. It's like, oh, you just believe this and, and whatever else. And like, it's because you grew up in this culture that you believe on. It's like, yeah, well, it is advantageous that I grew up in the U.S. because it, Christianity is the predominant religion. But like, I don't believe just because there are a lot of Christians around me. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say when I was in college and probably for many of you guys that are younger here or in your workplace, being a Christian is of no social advantage to you. And yet, right, as I read the scriptures, it's like, no one would read the Bible seriously and take it literally and think like, yeah, like this is the best way to start a religion and a, a, a system of government of self-control. 
right? Jesus says like, outrageous things like drink my blood and eat my flesh, right? If you want to love me, like deny your family, right? Don't, don't love your family more than you love me, right? Take up your cross and follow me. I don't know about you guys, but if I was, you know, a first or second century leader and was trying to create a cult that I could use to control entire groups of people, I might choose language that wasn't so strange, that wasn't so weird. And yet the God of the Bible pretty much does everything he could possibly do, right, to push us away, right, from a philosophical and logical standpoint, and yet we see the power of God on display time and time again through Christ. And it's backed by these promises that God gives to his people, the assurance that he gives to Israel, that he's given them the land, and the assurance he gives to us as Christians, right? Look at Romans 8, 38. This is just one example of the assurance God gives to believers, right? Paul has just got done in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 talking about what a despicable human being he is. To where even at one point, he says, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't do it. Who will rescue me from myself? That's my own translation of that. But that's basically what he's saying. Like, I'm, I'm so wicked. Who will rescue me from me? And then you get to Romans 8, and he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you get all the way down to verse 38 and look at what he says. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, that is assurance. And that is the same God who assured Israel that he was for them, he assures us that his love is for us and that nothing can separate us from it. And so God displays that he is enough and that he assures Israel of his presence and that he is still their God. He also displays his power, right? If you look at verse four, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. The Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Joshua is gone. God is still keeping his promise and enabling Israel to move forward in what he had called them to do. Right? Basically, what is, what is being said there in that one verse of this narrative is Israel was not, militarily speaking, strong enough to do what God had asked them to do, and yet God delivered the Canaanites over to them anyway. Because God's power is behind what he's asked them to do. This is the same type of power that we have as Christians, right? If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin or whatever is going on in your life, and you're like, I just don't know. Walking with God is really difficult. Look at the promise of God in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Guys, one of the most beautiful things about being a follower of Jesus is that you have the Holy Spirit residing inside of you if you are truly a disciple of Jesus. And that spirit is God's power to be at work in you. It's not just you who's trying to walk with God. It is the Holy Spirit empowering you to continue to walk with him. Trust him. So we see God's assurance. We see God's power. And then lastly, we see God's presence. Go down to verse 19 of chapter 1. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. Let's stop there. I want you to notice something unique about this. God's presence, God himself, his presence is promised to be with Israel. And Judges tells us that God was with them. But the question you might ask yourself as you're reading chapter one is like, well, like God was not a man walking amongst them. Like what, like how was his presence amongst them? And I would say, say this to you, right? There's three ways in which God's presence dwelt with Israel consistently throughout scripture. Right, the first one is through his word, right? He spoke through the prophets, right? He had his word. He gave his presence through his word. The second one is through his spirit, especially when they were leaving um, Egypt, right? God appeared in a, a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, right? The spirit of God uh, was on Mount Sinai as the Ten Commandments and the law were given to Moses. But the last thing I want you to see is this. God's presence is given to his people through community. Right, look at verse three and look at verse 17. Right, in verse three, he said, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to to me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Go down to verse 17 with me. And Judah went with Simeon and his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of that city was called Hormah. Simeon and Judah obey God's command and fight together, and God's presence blesses them together. You know, one of the theologians and biblical scholars that has helped me tremendously as I've been studying the book of Judges to prepare this sermon series for you guys is a guy by the name of Dale Ralph Davis. And I love what he said about this particular idea of God's presence resting inside of the community of Israel. And really guys, if we extrapolate this out, God's presence residing inside of the church to bless his people and community. He said, as Yahweh's people assisted one another, they received God's help. The Lord's people thrive on mutual assistance. God has given us one another as channels of his help and strength. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are here this morning and you want more of God's presence in your life, God's presence will be most present for you as you worship, serve, and grow together with God's people in the church, the body of Christ. Guys, I I love the local church not because I'm a pastor of it, 
but because I've seen God's power and presence transform people and their lives as I've been in church ministry over the course of the last 16 years. God's presence is not meant to be experienced in isolation, but in community. Right? One of the, the common things amongst evangelical circles in the United States is to talk about our, our, God, our God and our relationship with him being personal. And I would say, yes, I cannot love God for you. I cannot make you repent of sin and choose to obey. I do not have that power. Otherwise, I would do it for my kids. It'd be really nice to have super obedient children all the time. So yes, our walk with the Lord is personal, but it is not solely personal. Right, look at Ephesians chapter 3 and look what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So see what he's saying there so far? He's like, hey, if you want to be strengthened, if you want to know God more, you want to grow deeply with him, pay attention. Starting in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See the language there? Like to know the width and the breadth, the depth, the length, and the height of God's love for you. Do you see what Paul says is necessary to comprehend that? He doesn't say you do that alone in your prayer closet and disconnect from people. No, he says it's done with all the saints. If you want to experience God's presence, power, and assurance, you must be with God's people to fully experience that. I know we have a lot of first-timers here this morning. A lot of you guys are new to Gainesville, and this may be your only time at Aletheia Church. And if that's the case, so be it. Here is my plea to you. Do not neglect the body of Christ during your time in Gainesville. You're going to be tempted to sleep in, to hop around, to leave and go home, right? To, to, miss, to miss and long for your church back home, which you should. But especially if you're a student, you are gonna spend roughly, out of the 52 average Sundays a year in Gainesville, you're gonna spend roughly 35 to 36 of them in Gainesville. The majority of them should be spent finding a family that loves God and will push you to do the same during your time here. And I'm here to tell you, Aletheia Church is one of those places, but if you, if you come up to me after service and like, Kevin, thanks, but no thanks. I, you drove me crazy. Okay, cool. Right? Jesus is for everyone. I'm not. Right? I will immediately recommend to you five great ministries in this city. Right? 
right? I, I had the privilege of speaking at the Mount Retreat to incoming freshmen a couple weeks ago. And I said this line, and I fully believe it. If you live in Gainesville and you are not connected to a body of believers in Gainesville, the problem is not the church or the ministries, it's you. There are so many solid, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, God-fearing, people-loving churches and ministries in this city that if you do not get plugged into one, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. It's you, not them. And God's words to you would be, if you want to fully experience the presence and power and love of God for you in Christ, that is done through the body of Christ and with the body of Christ, not separated from them. The same way that God blessed Israel through one another with his presence, not separate from one another. And you will notice as we study the book of Judges together, when they start fighting amongst themselves and stop being a community to one another, more and more problems are going to arise for them the same way it does for the local church. And so we see here that God is communicating, Israel, I'm enough for you. And he's saying the same thing to us. And yet, they fail to get it, right? Which is where we're going to see our second point, right? Failure to obey leads to oppression. I am not going to read all these verses, but trust me when I say this. In verses 27 through 36, God repeats himself multiple times, right? The tribes of Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulon, Asher, and Naphtali. Here's what God says is true about all of them. They did not drive out the inhabitants, Right? That's the summary of what's going on in those verses. God told them, go take your land, drive out the inhabitants. They go into the land. Guess what they don't do? They don't drive out the inhabitants. And there begins the problem for the Israelites. They were commanded to do so. Right? When God gives a command, it's not a suggestion. I think oftentimes, right, we think, right, when we're given commands or rules or laws, right, it's like, oh, well, like, Florida suggests that I go 35 miles per hour on this road. Or like my government has suggested that it's 20 miles per hour through this school zone. I will assure you, you will find out very quickly if an officer is around, that is not a suggestion. And your bank account will feel it. Right? When God gives these commands to Israel, he gives them for their good and their flourishing. The same way that a school zone speed limit is for your good and your flourishing and the good of those around you. And so God looks at this situation. He tells them, look, I know it's going to be a problem for you. Remember what we read in Exodus chapter 23? God warned them, if you do not drive out the inhabitants, they will become a snare for you. God warned them. Israel didn't listen. And what we will see time and time again is this failure to obey God's commands to possess the land will lead to a lack of flourishing for Israel. When, when Israel and the tribe, specifically the northern tribes, failed to drive out the Canaanites, here are some things that happened. They began worshiping other gods. They began setting up altars to other gods. They started becoming involved in ungodly business practices like slave trade. They got involved in sexual immorality and prostitution. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is where do we differ from the Israelites? Because here's what I'll say. God's commands in scripture to us 
are pathways to freedom, not to slavery and oppression. Failure to obey God's commands may seem like fun, may seem liberating, but the weird thing about sin is what it's actually doing is putting you under slavery. You know, one of the most impactful things I ever heard as a relatively new believer when I was in college was from a guy by the name of of Matt Chandler. And he was talking about this idea of God's law and commands being for our good. And one of the things he said throughout that sermon that I was listening to, he's like, hey, look, right? God's commands and law are designed for you to love, enjoy, and obey him all the days of your life and to flourish as a human being because you were created to love, know, and glorify God. That's the reason you exist. If you don't like that, tough. You're not God. And because you were designed to love, know, glorify, and flourish with him, Right? Failure to obey him is going to lead to some problems. And one of the lines in that sermon that has stuck with me now for almost 15 years is this. No one robs you of more joy than you. And that stuck with me because as I battled with sin and dealt with things, I saw that to be true time and time and time again. I would I would entertain sin or I would run after my idols thinking that they were going to lead to liberation or fun and freedom. And every time, all it led to was misery, slavery, broken relationships, and strife in my life. And that lesson is the same lesson that Israel was learning through their own rebellion. That the flourishing And the land that God had promised them was not going to be experienced because their rebellion was robbing them of the joy God had designed to give to them. So are you you flourishing here this morning? Maybe the question you need to ask yourself is not where is God, but where am I not abiding by his clear commands in my life? Maybe I'm my own problem, not God. Which will inevitably lead to the question, well, what do I do? What do I need to do? If I'm I'm not flourishing, if I'm not abiding by God's commands, what do I need to do? Which leads us to our final point. Repentance is the only way forward out of our disobedience. Look at verses one through three of Judges chapter two. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. See what God's saying to Israel? He's like, look, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you. I brought you into the land. Grace, I gave you what you did not deserve. I will never break my covenant with you. Assurance, promise. And yet, in the midst of all that blessing that I gave you, where I showed to you time and time again that I was your God and I was for you, you did not break down their altars. You did not drive them out of the land and you did not obey my voice. 
Therefore, I'm not going to drive them out now. You're going to realize that they're the problem, but it's going to be too late. And they will be a snare to you. And the rest of this book is going to be because of Israel's failure to obey in that moment. The rest of their time in the land is going to be spent through this constant ebb and flow of oppression, freedom, oppression, freedom. And their joy is going to be robbed. And you get to verse four and you see this like really, really interesting moment for Israel, right? Because they say, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people, the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They're like, oh no, what have we done? And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they realized, oh my gosh, I'm, we messed up. What have we done? But I want to ask you this question. Does Israel actually repent here? I want you to think about that for a second. It's one thing to be sorrowful over your sin and the consequences of sin. The consequences of disobedience. It's another thing to love God's word, believe God's word, see that you are not in alignment with God's word and change and move towards obedience. Guys, Israel does not have a morality problem. They know the law of God. Just like many Christians, we know what God's word says. They have a faith and repentance problem. They don't believe that God is really as good as he promises. They don't believe that his commands are for their good and for their flourishing. They don't want to obey. They want to be like God, deciding what right and wrong is. And not surprisingly, problems follow that mindset. If you go down and look at Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, their failure to repent and truly turn to God leads them to generational problems. Right? It says in verse 10 that the next generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That was not how it was supposed to be. Right, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is giving this like final sermon before he passes away. And one of the things he says in verse, uh, verses 4 through 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
See what he's saying there? It is a command of God that Israel was supposed to pass down the good news of God and his love for them from generation to generation to generation to generation. They are in Canaan for one generation. And what did they do? They already failed. Yes, they knew that Yahweh existed, but they did not know him as the loving, compassionate, deliverer, all-knowing God of the universe. And therefore, they started to put their trust in multiple gods, in people, in other nations, and in themselves. Instead of staying loyal to Yahweh, instead of driving out the inhabitants Instead of rejecting false gods and false worship, their lack of faith and repentance towards God led them down a path of adultery and infidelity, which led them to not properly pass down a saving knowledge of God's power, presence, and assurance in their lives. And parents, let me speak to you here for just a moment. And if you are not married or do not have kids, but you want to be a parent one day, what I'm about to say to you is really important. The most important person in your child's life other than Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life will be you. If you want your kids to know and love the Lord, the impact you will have, you cannot measure. I've been doing ministry in college towns long enough to have met tons and tons of people in their late teens and early 20s over the years. And a consistent theme I see for the majority of people that don't do what I did, who got to college and made a shipwreck of their life for the first couple years, but the people that are walking faithfully with Jesus when they get to college, they get in community, they get surrounded by people, a consistent theme amongst most of them is that they had a parent or a parent-like figure in their life who loved God and showed what it meant to walk faithfully with him. It matters. And because Israel failed to do that, they suffered for it. And the next generation experiences even more pain and even more sorrow. Like, look, my parents are probably going to watch this sermon, and so I'll probably get yelled at when they watch this later. But because they did not faithfully prioritize walking with God, I had about a two to three year path of complete and utter self-destruction in my own life because they did not prioritize walking with God and make me do the same. Now, is it their fault? No, trust me, I, I, I was the author of my own demise. I was, I was actually really, really good at it. If you ever want to like, hey, what's a, what's a quick way to like ruin your life, friendships, family relationships, and college? I could write a book for you. I assure you. I would, I would not recommend, recommend following it, but I could show you how it's done. And only by the grace of God was I, was I rescued out of that. But to truly display to the next generation the beauty of walking with God, we walk in humility and repentance and faith towards him. The same call that God had given Israel. And Israel does not display genuine repentance and faith towards God here. They display a worldly grief and sorrow. 
Right, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What he means by that is if someone is really in Christ and understands the depth of God's love for them and forgiveness to them in Christ, if they confess and repent sin, they're not going to have regrets because they're going to know Jesus is enough. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Right? If you know anything about the, the church at Corinth, right, th that church was messed up. Like hot mess. And Paul writes them this letter, and he basically just yells at them for like 15 or 16 chapters. Like, you got this going on. This is a problem. You're terrible. I can't believe I even, like, baptized any of you. What is wrong with you? you wh why is this happening? Why are you arguing over which leader is better? I, I can't even with you. And so he, this second letter gets to them, and he's like, you guys repented. You pursued God with zeal. You took my exhortation seriously. You asked God to forgive you, and he did. You started walking in obedience. And you have proved at every point yourselves innocent in the matter. Because repentance, guys, isn't just confession. It leads to change in obedience. I didn't say perfection. I said it leads to a habitual pattern of obedience in your life. So, God wants you to turn to him. He wants you to repent. It's what he wanted Israel to do, even though they wouldn't do it. What are you struggling with? What is robbing you of joy in God's presence? The good news is you could have walked into this room this morning as one person and walk out completely changed. That's what the Holy Spirit does. All that God asks is that you would humble yourself. Trust that Jesus came to die for you and liberate you from your own sin and walk forward in obedience to him. And the promise of scripture is that he is ready to receive you into his loving embrace, his assurance, his power, his presence, so that in him you might experience true joy and flourishing. But the only place that's found is in walking faithfully with him and no one else.